Listening Dog Media. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. How to DJ. The thing about music where it can just give you goosebumps, that, that's one of my favourite things to play. So we sent it on the Tuesday and sent it to his record label, Double F Double R, and he played it on the Friday. Then... Yeah, I've, I've DJed in great venues all over the world, you know, I mean, the big venues that everyone talks about. A podcast exploring life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. I normally have a standard introduction, but for this episode, I'm going to read a message that I asked Jez from Utah Saints if there were any good pointers to start this episode with. And rather than the standard introduction, I'm going to read you what Jez sent me, okay? Maybe you could ask him how it was going from Pop Will Eat Itself and the Sisters of Mercy to tour managing Utahs at loads of raves. He's a talented artist. He painted a lot during lockdown. He has a skateboarding dog. (laughs) You should ask him why Back to Basics started. There was a definite philosophy behind it which made it feel very different to the majority of rave clubs at the time. He once volunteered to jump from the ceiling in the gallery club where (laughs) Utahs were based during our gig, suspended by climbing ropes, dressed as an archbishop. For that alone, he would get our respect, but he's done so much trailblazing for club music and leads, he is a superstar. He is Dave Beer. Welcome to How To DJ, Dave. Thank you. So, yeah, Pope on a rope, was it? (laughs) (laughs) literally Dave before heading into the box of questions have you always been obsessed with music definitely yeah that and um, and the other two (laughs) but we'll we'll leave those for now well the whole sex drugs and rock and roll yeah there you go where did that all start I think everything starts with an E so it's probably Elvis yeah I mean uh, my mum loved Elvis and uh, what's not to love? So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I've always been interested in music. Um, music and art, the only two things that really ever sunk in. I kind of found out that I had ADHD in my 50s. So, like, uh, they didn't have a, any idea, they have a clue. I was a disruptive influence, they said, as a child. Did you have a, a happy childhood? Yeah, predominantly. I mean, tricky one, you know, like it was a single parent family in a council estate in a little mining town in West Yorkshire. So uh, it had its moments, you know, it was like I had 56 pubs in a square mile 
So it was a good battleground, you know, biggest colliery in the north of England and uh, the biggest army barracks as well, and not enough women to go around. So uh, not only did the squaddies come and shag your missus, they beat you up for it as well. On that note, you know, it's, uh, I chose not to do, do either, join the army or go down the pit. When did you get into your own bands after Elvis? I mean, I kind of, it's kind of well documented that I, uh, I ran away with The Clash when I was 15. But I mean, I didn't really run away with them as such. I mean, it was like I was running away from a lot of things at that age. And uh, it just so happened The Clash were in Leeds that night and perfect, you know what I mean? It was a no-brainer really. Uh, and they were on tour, I think they were in Coventry the night after all. So I was just off with them. And, what, what were you running away from? I think the fact that I had my GCSEs, really. I think that the embarrassment of not um, being able to put two and two together at that stage. And um, also, I mean, I was, there was also a lot of domestic violence at home. and But that didn't really bother me too much, you know what I mean? I, like, uh, not as much as um, exams being in Chinese. Like, well, they may as well have been in Chinese for me. But, like, in there sort of like early 80s, I didn't have any kind of idea. It was only in the 90s they actually worked out what ADHD is, or, or kind of like that kind of binaural um, sort of deficit, So, which all makes sense now, audibly makes sense now, but you know, luckily um, it'll be more benefit to my kids than, uh, than it, for me. How did it manifest itself for you as a teenager? It never did manifest itself. You kind of work your way around it. It's like kind of... It's sort of like now looking back in hindsight, it's kind of like, oh, right, okay, right, that makes sense, and that makes audible sense. Maybe like like things might have been a bit different if I'd have realised that I was actually impulsive and I wasn't always right. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like the first time that you saw the clash in Leeds, age 15? Well, what do you say about that? I mean, it was a total powerhouse, you know, like the clash or something else, I mean... Really well, the synchronicity is the kind of that kind of beautiful nonsense that came out of the class. Yeah, I mean, it just kind of well, not, it's not nonsense as such, it's like just like the, the camaraderie. You felt like you were in a gang, you felt like you were in a family, you know, like with the clash. It was like something like a force to be reckoned with, as they say. It's like an hurricane. Yeah, that's all I can explain it to. It's like it's a total hurricane of a performance. Did you get to know them? Yeah, yeah, really well, right up to Joe's, Joe passing, yeah. I was supposed to be at a campfire the week um, with Joe the week he died. And I'd been spending a lot of time with him up to that. You know, places like the Groucho, we'd been hanging out and down in Winchester, a friend, a mutual friend of ours. We'd been spending a lot of time together, and I never really got around to say, telling Joe, like, uh, I'm sure he knew, but like, what he actually what he meant to me, you know, like, you just get on with like being yourself, don't you? You know what I mean? But like, if it hadn't been for Joe, really, and the class per se, would life would have been a lot different for me, hell of a lot different, in fact. Did you obsess about any other bands at that time? Not really. I mean, obviously, there was the Sex Pistols and the, the Damned, but. The Clash kind of stood for something like if that was a little bit more kind of um, socially, socially aware, you know, they kind of, they taught me about black and white, they taught me about standing up for your rights, whereas bands like The Cure taught me about love, you know, like um, The Clash 
sort of put me on the right track, as it were. Yeah. After following the clash around, how did your GCSE results go? They didn't. No, yeah, I left school without any. Right. Yeah. What happened next? Uh, whilst I was away, my mum managed to like scramble together like lots of pieces of artwork and kind of knock up a kind of a, 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 a makeshift portfolio and went to the uh, art school in um, Wakefield. Went to the art school and uh, said, asked them what uh, they thought of my work. Said, is this any good? It's my son, but I'm not too sure where he is right now. And he's left school without any O-levels. What do you think? And they said, well, it actually is quite good. If we can find him and bring him in, and we might be able to work a way that he can come and do a course where he has to sit another two O-levels and an A-level and then we can get him onto a foundation court because this work's exceptional. So, albeit doodles and drawings of uh, of uh, album covers and things like that, uh, as I remember. But yeah, my mum uh, like, like covertly got me into uh, art school. So when she was giving Joe Summer a bollocking, because he, he made me call phone home uh, one time, and we'd only just got a landline, and uh, my mum was just giving him it down the phone, saying that I had to get him back, or she, he had uh, her to answer to. And she said, because he's going to art school, he he, uh, he dropped that one on me. I said, no, no, I'm not. I'm coming with you. He said, no, no, you're not coming with us. I mean, if they'd had enough of having, a, having me, like, uh, as a responsible, their responsibility. So, uh, yeah, the, the, he, put, he, put, he, he did a deal with me. Back in the day where people used to spit on their hand and do the handshake, he, he said uh, that if I went back and did as my mum asked and went to art school, and bear in mind, he, he, that's where he informed me that, you know, the, the rest of the class had met at art school and as did a lot of other bands that I were into, like Susie and Banshees, even the Pistols to an extent. He said that if I went up, went back home and did what my mum asked me to do, I, I could go and tour with them properly when they got back from America. And he kept his word, you know, really, because I said he didn't, he didn't believe me in here. And he told me um, in the words of um, Joe Stummer were like, you know, sometimes in life that's all you've got is your word. You know, like money's one thing, you know, but integrity is everything. And uh, if your word means nothing, then you are nothing. That's something that stuck with me till this day, you know, it's like, uh, and it's something that I passed down as well, you know, that kind of, if you, if you, if you don't tell lies, you don't need a memory. <laughs> what happened when you left art school? I was in a band. I was in several bands, in fact, but um, managing to get a, a record deal with 4AD without even, um, having any music at that point, but we looked the part. So yeah, we were too, in, in hindsight, we were too busy uh, looking the part and telling everybody how great our band was to actually create the band. What was the band? I think at that stage it was there, uh, we were called Funeral Party. But before that we were called Dada, which is like, uh, not just the, I mean, it sounds a bit pretentious, but uh, it was um, the art movement, but also because we were just coming out of art school and it was like me and Alistair. So it was Dave, Ali, and the two girls in the band was uh, Deborah and Alison. So it was more of our initials, but we were rubbish. And um, But like uh, everybody was rubbish back then. Was the dream though, to be in a band, to be like The Clash? Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, it's always, it was always been about, yeah, it's always been about being in a band, but I never wanted to be in a successful band. It was always like to be in a band that had maybe like a, a few hundred like cult followers. 
it, which was like you know unless you unless you were like that and like bands like at, at that stage it was like the sisters of mercy and theater of eight sex gang children bands like that that were if you had a cult following then you know that was something difficult at that time as well which went on to be difficult and and that and then the cult that they uh kind of you know exceeded that um the constraints of being in a in a kind of a a kind of a more of a cult band yeah like if you if you'd sold more than like a thousand records you'd sold out you know does that mean then that you achieved your dream of not being successful yeah 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 exactly you know I never thought about it like that but it's a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy yeah but I mean, I'm a big believer in um, you know, manifestation and thoughts becoming things anyway. So looking back at a lot of my um, interviews, I've never really changed my tune. I've never, uh, I've always said the same things. It'd be more or less articulate. It just depends on the occasion and the consumption of um, alcoholic drinks and such forth. But yeah, yeah, I'm like a. I always, um, when I look back at the interviews now, thinking I, I always like kind of harp on about, you know, it's more of a way of life for us than a, a, a business. So it's kind of, it was like always, uh, it's not about the money, it's about, you know, what we do, you know, it's like more of a way of life, you know, which is like what I actually manifested anyway. So, you know, like looking back, it's like, yeah, Probably did yeah, achieve what I uh, set out to do. What happened after those bands? I ended up being roadies, roading for bands. So like, um, then I went on loads of world tours with bands like uh, That Petal Emotion and uh, Ghost Dance, and um, who were touring with um, the, the Ramones and then Motorhead and Zodiac Mind Walk, people like that, which is a good uh, educational process, except for like um, Lemmy's advice of them. Um, to keep two eyebrows and then never fall asleep and piss yourself at a party was to take amphetamine, which he never, he failed to point out that makes your teeth fall out. But like, as I pulled him on that, not long before his sad departure, he was sat with two dolly birds in LA and I've said, hey mate, how are you doing? He said, go a little bit of God, it's been some time. And I'm like, yeah. I said, do you remember you told me that if I always want to keep my eyebrows in there, never fall asleep and piss myself at a party to uh, take speed. And he said, uh, I said, yeah, same advice to give anybody. You know what I mean? And, I mean, I'm like, as he's, as he's carry on chatting to these two blonde girls. And uh, I said, uh, I said, yeah, but you failed to point out that this happens. And I uh, showed him that uh, my non-existent molars. And he said, pondered on it. And he went, scratched his little wart on his chin and went, uh, yeah. And um, unless you want to be a fat bastard, who needs teeth? And he says, and by the way, BMO, good looks don't get you laid. And uh, yeah, waltzed up with these two uh, girls, like surf girls, like young enough to be his daughters, and our granddaughters, should I say. Yeah. Like, uh, and I just looked at him, I looked at the back of his head, and no, the back, back of his cowboy hat, and just thought, you cool, cool. <laughs> an absolute diamond, you know what I mean? Brilliant. Good advice and um, advice I'd, uh, you know, like uh, recommend to anybody, but I wouldn't condone it to everybody. DJ! Out to DJ! Hey, it's 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So when did you first DJ? Like, I can't do like, like, I've never thought of myself as a DJ. And then, like, it's only when I look, um, recently, as you, may, you know, I've been doing my book, and um, it's like I don't really do um, retrospect. I don't really look backwards, you know, like I tend to, like, um, either live in the now or... And yeah, most of the time just being the now. So it's like uh, looking back, um, it's one of those things like I don't really do until recently. And then I was looking at, I found all these uh, magazines in the loft. And uh, I was like, wow, look at that. You know, and uh, these things are, are totally slipped my memory. And I was thinking, wow, I can't remember that. that that's great. You know, it's like, looks like I had a ball, but um, <laughs> there's that, there I am DJing. Uh, you know, where in, a, in a time where I thought I, I, I never used to get behind the decks, but um, I don't know why they let me behind the decks, really, because I couldn't mix a vodka and orange back then. You know, it's like, it's like criminal. You know, I was like, uh, um, you know, like playing at one of my own clubs, I would have took my me, me off the decks, you know, for sure. So how did you go on to become one of the most successful club promoters in the UK? I mean, I've been by like, uh, always been like good at throwing the after party. I wasn't the best roadie, I don't think, or the best stage manager or just from Utah. I'll definitely say that I probably wasn't the best um, manager or tour manager. At times, like whilst they were all tucked up in bed, I'd be out partying and they'd be sat in the hotel foyer as I uh, returned, you know, you know, like the next day with the takings and the proceeds from the night before or what's left of them. But we know, we always got there, we always made it, you know. Uh, yeah, so uh, I don't know. Um, I think the club just like kind of was the, the essence of it and the timing when we started Back to Basics in the early 90s, it was just there. Uh, it's perfect timing. It was what, what was needed for that kind of post-punk kind of soul, post-soul boy kind of period of like, you know, Acid House had run its course, you know, like, and we were like kind of much more about the music and the way we looked as well, you know, it's like having a little bit more of self-respect. And so we, we, we sort of, the club was, you know, for the more discerning club, as we said at the time, or two steps further than any other fucker, which is also a pretty bold statement to live up to. But I believe we have done. Who were the first DJs to play Back to Basics? Well, besides the residents, people like uh, John Kelly, uh, and Weatherall, of course, which who became resident for a while. Uh, Danny Ramplin was one that stood out, but Lisa Loud also, she uh, ran a company called Loud and Clear at the time, which gave, sent out white labels. As she said, as he said on the tin with Lisa, you know, loud being the operative word, uh, she put the word out. And the next thing we know, we've got everybody from Oak and Fall to where we're all and all them. 
we joined up with um the London crew, like because there was a Balearic network and such going going on, like kind of from Venus in Nottingham with James Bailey's club and Charlie Chester's flying in London and Volante um to Slam in Scotland. So we all like kind of were were sort of circulating the same similar sort of DJs. Um I mean they call it Balearic now, but I mean Balearic uh, now I think is more like a like acoustic guitars and uh, uh but like whereas back then it was more of a kind of a, a state of mind you know like how you played like alfredo for instance you know he would drop a like an 80s sort of pop song and into like derrick may and then they into like some kind of rock track rock track and that's like for me that's what Balearic meant you know it's like more of mashup bit of all sorts of different styles of music all into one and basics was kind of a two-finger salute to what was going on at the time. We were kind of sick of, uh, like, the, 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 although we were, you know, definitely ravers and straight-up cheesy clavers, yeah, definitely. But we'd had enough of it by then, you know. It was like kind of before the criminal justice bill came in, it was like the scene had gone in one area, like, gangsters, like, to... And to the other end of just like straight up muppets, like covering themselves in vicks and like running around like blowing whistles and wearing white gloves and glow sticks and all that kind of carry on, which is really not my cup of tea. So it was like uh, we were we we had enough of that, you know. Like uh, people, I mean, like really, it's like people covering you in vicks, saying like, "Mate, come on, this is gonna bring you up on your ear." It's like. That's highly unlikely, mate, that uh, some Vix is going to do that to me right now, you know what I mean? Consuming what else I've consumed. How big did Back to Basics get? I mean, you tell me. I mean, it's like, uh, it, it became the stuff of legends, didn't it? Which is a, a beautiful thing, you know, like uh, for you to witness in your own lifetime, I suppose. But like, also like, um, it could have um it could have been almost anything. It's like a piece of string. How big? How long's a piece of string? It's like kind of how big is back to basics. It's like it's it's kind of um boutique as well as being beautifully big as well. You know, it's like kind of a one of the world's well-known brands, but yeah. we never sold out. We ne- and that was never really part of the um, ethos. And when we when I lost Ali. Because um, me and Ali, my partner, um, in the club and best mate through art school and uh, through bands, um, sadly died uh, in my arms, as it were, like um, in a car crash on the way to um, Scotland. So, like, I never uh, really changed the ethos of the club, and uh, so it wasn't really for sale. So when those moments came, when like, uh, say, Cream and Ministry of Sound and people like that were taking all these big endorsements, that weren't really on the cards for Back to Basics. It it wasn't for sale, you know, it was like, uh, which is probably why those brands aren't around today, or or if they are, don't have the same respect that Back to Basics does. Whereas like, uh, we're still there. And, uh, you know, there's a lot to be said for that, really, I think. uh, it would be easier to get rid of AIDS than get rid of us right now. You're obviously aware of just how influential you've been, how much of an impact you've had on the lives of so many DJs and so many bands. How does that make you feel? Yeah, kind of warm inside, yeah. 
it's kind of a, you know like sometimes I you know just some people say do you not wish that you'd have asked for the twenty percent uh, when you're sort of like putting Daft Punk or Basement Jacks or Kumaru or whoever helped to put them on the map um, and like like the answer is always no you know it's like. Uh, when you see them on stage, like say Blasphemy on the Pyramid stage and that, and you know that you had a part to play in that. It's kind of like being a proud dad. It's more like that kind of warm feeling of like, yeah, you know, that's brilliant. You know, just to be right, you know, just to know that, you know, you were right. It means more than the money. Dave, into the box now then for the first of your five questions from 45 <laughs> on 45 Records, Thieves. I want you to pick them out at random. I'll dip into the box. You say when. I'll pull out a question, okay? Okay. In the box. Pull him on out. Yeah. What is your greatest achievement? Ooh. <laughs> I just yet to be discovered, but besides my kids, I think, which, which most people, most parents would say, they're the children, but I'm... I mean, I've got fond memories of being on the at the Albert Hall when with me and Alistair in the first year of the club, which was again a surprise of winning the the DMC Best Club. I think which was probably the, one of the first times that uh, that award had actually been given, you know, to Best Club, you know, like which is in the early nineties, which is now like commonplace in DJ or, or over magazines. But um, yeah, that was a a great moment, but. Uh, I don't know. I think that's uh, again, you know. I don't really think about. I don't. I never like look at life like that. Okay. What about looking forward? What would you still like to achieve? I'd like to um, live in Dogtown. I think I'd like to live in Venice Beach. You know, it's like just for a little while, get out of my system. You know, like live in uh, Santa Monica for a while. But uh, yeah, my books um, uh, imminent, and uh, I think like I mean for that to. Uh, to, to do well and to be able to become a bestseller would be a great achievement, you know. So, um, so like, at least I, I could go, go on and not have to keep telling the same old stories again and boring people at parties. <laughs> it's like witching bomb myself, you know. Dave, they're the best stories. Back into the <laughs> box for another question. Say when, I'll pull one out. That's cool, yeah. Where in the world is the best DJ booth? Now, maybe that's was or is the best DJ booth? I mean, the best DJ booth I ever saw is probably uh, Junior Vasquez at the Sound Factory, which he had it like a living room. But then again, he was playing like 18 hour sets, so he'd need a living room. But uh, for me, the best DJ booth has got to be Space Terrace, be it in its, in, in kind of, it's, in, in its kind of incarnation that, um, when we managed to persuade Pepe to uh, bring the decks out from inside onto the bar outside, because we we wanted to be in the sun, um, to it becoming you know evolving into the booth that it was until it closed, you know like with the function one sound system and it being more enclosed. I mean, Space Terrace was probably on a Sunday was probably the place to be in the world. I mean, there wasn't, wasn't a better place to be. You just knew it when you were in space on, on a Sunday afternoon that uh, there was nowhere else on earth like it. Um, and in the booth, I mean, the sound's perfect, monitor's perfect, 
I mean, it couldn't be that it doesn't get much better than that. It's like the Wembley of of, of nightclubs, but uh, as as Wembley is to football, then. But which I wish I'd have realised at the time when I was DJing. It maybe I would have uh, not been as kind of uh, carefree uh, as I was at times. Um, where it's like sometimes I'd forget that I was actually DJing and think I was driving a lorry through three and a half thousand like European peoples clubbing and uh yeah and 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 pleasing myself what to put on and say uh, Bon Jovi's living on a prayer which I probably was at the time but uh Sasha was happy with that one he's like he came over and said it was like Valeric as I'm like fighting off like Darren Hughes and everybody else trying to get into the DJ booth to stop me from uh, playing it but it could have been worse I could have put um you gave love a bad name on, which is like three tracks away from that <laughs> on the album. <laughs> right, your third question from the box now. Say when, Dave. Yeah, go on then. <laughs> what do you wish you'd never done? Ooh. Ooh. I wish I'd never done. Oh, there's a question. Um I don't know if there's anything that I wish I'd never done to be true. If I'm not there, if I did, it would just come straight to me, wouldn't it? Um, anything I'm wishing I'd done, probably. No, that's you've stumped me on that one. I think that's so good that you can't answer that. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm trying my hardest to think of something that I wish I'd that I'd never done. There's things that I maybe wish I had done, but no, I don't even think there's things I wish I, I no, yeah. What an amazing answer. I'm not one, uh, I'm not much of a wisher. Back into the box. Question four now then. So, say when. Sorry, I'm still on the last question. I'm thinking, oh, what is it? I'm like, <laughs> should I have that? It comes back to you. Jump yeah. in. Question four is, what's the smallest venue and the biggest venue you've ever played? Ooh, smallest um, probably in living rooms, you know, as a or in the uh, after parties back at mine, and the biggest maybe uh, when I play we play, I played for, we played with Whitney Houston, would you believe, and Shaggy, in Kuala Lumpur to thirty thousand people, which is kind of amusing. Um, as I said, that I needed a microphone, like as I said, that I did MC in, which is slightly not too. So uh, as I slipped into a, a Peter KS, kind of rant about um, Whitney Houston doing all the gearing with Bobby Brown <laughs> to 30,000 people and before they could cut the microphone off. But I was like, yeah, I was like, kind of, Whitney Houston, ladies and gentlemen, how about that then? Well, I had the, uh, I had the, um, the pleasure of witnessing uh, uh, a young Whitney um, at Wembley who uh, brought tears to my eyes and she did tonight for different reasons. Right. Um, yeah, so it didn't go down too well, but yeah. Needless to say, uh, three bottles of Dom Perignon later and um, and the police waiting for us at um, customs uh, to, to, to stop us getting out of the country, as it were. Um, I mean, that was an, another story that you'll have to read in the book. Yeah. Some book, isn't it? Well, yeah, it is. It is. We've done about 30 chapters now. I mean, like, uh, something like nearly uh, 200,000 words. So, like, making sense of it is, uh, is, is, is tricky. Before your final question, I do just want to ask, 
uh, about those after parties in your front room. Who's the most famous person to have been in that front room? The amusing ones come to mind, like, uh, say, Coldplay, for instance, like without Chris Martin. And Dad, the Coldplay boys back at mine one day, uh, totally scramble arbored, uh, and, uh, <laughs> um, which is kind of amusing. But um, there's been a lot of uh, sort of like, uh, yeah, A-list performers and um, actors back at mine over the years. Some of them before they were famous and some of them um, whilst being famous. But like, yeah, I'm not, um, although I will um, let some of it out of my book, um, I'm not privy to uh, say it off the cuff. Fine. I'm not sure if this is going to make the edit, but the even Coldplay, that's just... A yeah, it was hilarious. Yeah, I mean, I mean, absolutely hilarious. Uh, they were supposed to be rehearsing that day. Um, there's a place just outside Leeds where um, all the stadium bands, uh, like, um, I think it's called something structures, light structures or something, where uh, the bands come and um, rehearse and it's kind of off the beaten track so like they can have a bit of a... Um, uh, time to themselves to rehearse to uh, to go on world tours, so all the big bands uh, do it off the radar. And um, Coldplay happened to be in town, and and uh, um, and I think it's Guy and Johnny made the mis mistake of uh, coming to the club that night, and uh, and I and I made the bigger mistake of coming back to mine after, <laughs> where they were missing in acting and. Uh, yeah, whilst, uh, you know, like, um, we were telling them that they were, how shit they were. <laughs> and uh, that, that if they were the biggest band in the world, how come the tour manager just, you know, couldn't come and pick them up whenever they, they needed? Kaiser Chiefs, being from Leeds, they must be mates of yours. Yeah, yeah, they are, definitely. Uh, mm. Keep blessing them. Um, tiled uh, my uh, bathroom, my wet room for uh, studio time at my studio, <laughs> of which he never finished the grouting. And uh, and after hunting him down all night, uh, I mean, I, he said that he would come back and fix it, you know, like. But I mean, Rick is great because he. Uh, I remember him telling me that he was like, "Fuck this club in business." He said, "I'm gonna be a rock star," but I, and I didn't doubt it for a minute at that moment in time as he said it. And as you don't with uh, when you just know something's like destined, and uh, and uh, and off he popped and became a, a pop star. So I should have got him to sign me tiles, but. Uh, I let him off at my 50th uh, birthday because he brought Tom Jones along um, from uh, The Voice uh, to my birthday party, which uh, we, uh, we we lost in, in, immediately uh, as we were trying to find my missus there because like my, my uh, wife, now wife, loves Ricky. So I forfeited after spending a bit of time with Tom Jones to... Uh, take uh, Ricky to find my uh, missus who was uh, and also uh, um, missing in action and uh, so we couldn't find her by the time we got back Tom had left and uh, but we had some nice photographs and you know like uh, and some nice memories of that he's a great guy he's, uh, he's Ricky and, uh, and like as uh, as anybody you know as you know before they uh, go on to uh, become what they are today I think it's great you know like uh, it's nice to have them memories Ricky Wilson plastered my wet room has got to be a possible book title. I wouldn't um I wouldn't um, recommend him to to uh to do your your wet room if uh, if you don't want any leaks. But uh but then again um if it's uh, if you want a few whoa whoa woes in your songs you know he's your man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> Maybe the best put down I've ever heard. Final question from the, the box, uh, Dave. Sorry, Mickey. Say Here's your final question, Dave. What's the best club or festival crowd you've ever experienced? But like, you know, it's always back to basics. You know, like, I mean, uh, always back to basics. It's like uh, some of the things that have, have happened in, in that club or uh, or in those club nights and and really proud moments as well. You know, it's like uh, a kid going about like nights like where we had, uh, we first bought that punk back and uh, we had that punk in one room, Goldie in another, Sir Norman Jay and Barry Ashworth. Um, in a, in another room, and I think that was my thirtieth birthday. Yeah, that was a while back. Um, but yeah, I think it always like the crowd at Back to Basics is something else. They're kind of like really staunch and kind of even through generations, you know, like um, they really kind of um, their their knowledge of um, the music is like uh, unsurpassed. So like, uh, it, although it be a it's a, an hard. Um, crowd to to go in front of us like Pete Tong always said that it's his hardest crowd um that he's, he's ever played to the one that like makes him feel a little bit uneasy and I kind of like the fact that that whoever you are however big a DJ you are like or or band that comes to play that always feel a little bit uneasy and I'd like it to be like that always you know it's like kind of it mean it means that they actually perform that extra bit better or dig that extra a little bit harder and go the extra nine yards and there, which, um, you know, I'm happy to say like DJs do when they come to play back to basics. And um, if they didn't, the crowd would just sit on the floor. Um, if you played a bad record and then you just have to ask um, Jeremy Ely or uh, Eddie Flashing Folks about that one, you know, where the crowd just like sit down and not just in a good way, you know, like just to say like, what next? please Dave this has been incredible thank you so much for coming on the podcast I've got one final question for you and that is it's the end of the world and you've got to play the last three records on earth what would they be well it'd have to be uh, Training Bane the class um, Stand By Me My uh, funeral song was going to be uh, Womack and Womack, Teardrops. Which is probably a bit cheesy nowadays, but uh, but I didn't think I'd last this long, so uh, when, I, when I came up with that. So, uh, and the Third, gosh, um, would it be? It'd have to be a um, an Elvis Presley song, uh, maybe if it wasn't an house record. Um, in the ghetto. Yeah, it was my and uh, Weatherall's uh, favourite. God bless him. Um, yeah, and Nick Caves as well. He was another blinder. But I mean, if I had time to think about that and, and search for my record box, I'd probably choose another three records. But uh, yeah, they'll do for that one. Yeah. Dave, thank you so much 
Thank you. I'd like to uh, plug my new book forthcoming. Dave, right. you've been plugging it for the whole of this conversation. Have I? I forgot about that. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> well, it's called Excess All Areas and it'll be on the shelf in the bookshops near you soon. Piero, thank you so much. You're welcome, mate. Thank you for having me. And that was How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from.